So Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word in our lives, asking that your spirit would open our eyes to see and soften our hearts to hear. Lord, show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, make us your people for the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your holy name, we pray. Amen. So let's start with a question today. Wherever you are in life when it comes to Jesus, whether you're a dedicated follower of Jesus or not, whether you believe the Bible is God's word, or, or maybe you're with us or watching online or, or listening because you're dragged here or perhaps just happened upon this message, wherever you are in life when it comes to Jesus, I want you to take a few seconds and think about and maybe even write down your answer to this question. There's space in the sermon guide in our app. So here's the question asked a couple different ways. What are the top two, three priorities for the church and for Christians? What are the top two to three things that followers of Jesus should be focused on? Take about 30 seconds and come up with your answers. your answers? Great. So what did you say? Maybe evangelism and telling the story of the good news of Jesus? Maybe serving neighbor and showing compassion to those in your community? Maybe social action and fixing the world's many problems that are all around us? Or maybe you're a people pleaser like me and you wanted to please the preacher and you said something from our seven habits vision like engage in worship or pray and study the Bible or identify with Christ. Nice try. Bonus point for extra effort with the seven habits. Now, those, those would all be great answers. But what if I told you that according to the scriptures, one of the top priorities for Christians and for the church, something that definitely should have made your list if you follow Jesus, is something that likely few of us would think of right away. Full throttle devotion to communicating and living out the holiness of God. Maybe you had something on your list like Christ-likeness or, or doing what is good and right, and those are close, but did the holiness of God make your list? And by the way, if full-throttle devotion made your list, extra super crazy bonus points there. So if you're a Christian, 
would you say that communicating and living out the holiness of God, of who he is, is at the top of your life's list of priorities? Is God's holiness top of mind and heart for you? Let me ask it another way. Is your motivation for who you are becoming something that derives from and finds its power in who God is, or does your motivation for who you are becoming in life, is that pretty much something that requires no such divine help? Yeah, sure, in your finer moments, maybe you're motivated by communicating and living out the holiness of God. But if you're anything like me, I find rather that I'm motivated by a thousand other piddly and and selfish time-bound things that aren't remotely worthy of how much time and energy and money that I devote to them. If there's anything I'm full-throttled about, I wouldn't say it's communicating and living out of the holiness of God. And I suspect it's like that for most of us, right? Now, friends, what we'll learn today is that when we see who God is in the Scriptures, when we see that God is pure, perfect, sinless, and completely separate from the corruption of the world, we realize that God is worthy of our full-throttled, totally in-to-win devotion. Here's how we're saying this in today's guiding thesis about this attribute of God. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin. That's what it means to be holy, separated from sin or sinless. So God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and creation finds its true purpose in being devoted to honoring him as holy. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and creation finds its true purpose in being devoted to honoring him, honoring God as holy. So first, let's look at the idea that, uh, that God is in himself entirely holy, separated from sin. We see this within literally thousands of verses and contexts throughout the Bible where God is described as holy by name or title. But here are just a few representative examples. Psalm 71, 22 says this, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. Psalm 71 here is representative of thousands of verses like it, where it says that God is worthy of praise because of who he is in his character and nature. It says he is the Holy One of Israel. This is a way of saying that that his perfect character is what makes Israel his people. Who he is is what sets them apart and makes them special as his people. Their status came from his holiness. Now, the same exact title, Holy One, capital H, capital O, is applied to God in numerous places throughout the Bible. In fact, in three other places in the Psalms, as well as 32 times in Isaiah, as well as dozens of times in the book of 2 Kings and Job and Proverbs and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Habakkuk and Mark and Luke and John and Acts and 1 John and Jude and Revelation. 
So think about this. Throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, in 16 different books written by about a dozen authors, over the course of 1,500 years during which they were written, the witness of these scriptures is that God's character as sinless is what makes him alone able to speak truth that brings new life and that makes sinful people part of his flock. This is why God alone is described as the Holy One, because there's only one. God is the only one who is without sin. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, speaks of God as uniquely holy. It says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God alone is holy because God alone is separated from sin. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, the rock, capital R, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, and look at this, Without iniquity, there's the sinlessness. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God's work is perfect. It's complete. All his ways are justice. He's called here faithful and upright because he is without sin and totally separated from it. In Isaiah 6, 3, it describes these sort of fiery, angelic beings that have six wings each. They're called seraphim. They fly around God's throne and they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4, 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. These passages are using a typical Hebrew poetic device of saying something three times to speak of that thing's completeness, its fullness. So God is, is three times holy, completely, fully holy, entirely separated and apart from and without sin. God's holiness means that no sin can be in his presence. So, for example, when Moses was on Mount Sinai to receive God's law, he couldn't look directly at God. The people couldn't even so much as touch the hill where God was meeting with Moses, which is why David says in Psalm 24, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? The answer being, no one. We could go on and on and on with passages and stories showing that God alone is without sin. But let's cover the second part of today's thesis, that creation finds its true purpose, its true purpose in being devoted to honoring God as holy. We see this in both things and in people. For example, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was designed to honor God as holy as a reminder that God's people find their true purpose in honoring God. It was meant to be a holy place that was separated, set apart from the evil and the sin of the outside world. In fact, the word holy is used to describe both of the main parts of the tabernacle. The first room was called the holy place, and it was dedicated to being a place that, that honored and worshiped God. But then there was a veil, this huge, thick drape, and it 
separated, as Exodus 26 says, it separated the holy place, that first room, from the most holy place, which was this special room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and God's law was kept inside. It was considered a special place that was that was most separated. And only the high priest could go in once a year after going through all the proper rituals and having kept himself pure in order to meaningfully atone for the sins of the people of Israel. There were dozens and dozens of things like this for the people of God. For example, the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was dedicated to God because he is holy and he set it apart to remind us of his holiness. Exodus 20 verse 11 says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's a part of God's created order. Look at Genesis 2, 3. When we say in the Lord's prayer, for example, with this idea of of making something holy, we say, hallowed be thy name. It's the same verb as here in Exodus 20, 11 for made it holy. So God hallowed, he made the Sabbath day, this day of worship, holy because it was to be set apart from all the ordinary activities of the world and especially dedicated to God's service. It was a day of worship and rest and focus on God. In the same way as the tabernacle and the the Sabbath day and, and dozens of other things we could mention, God's people were to be holy. In Exodus 29, 44, the priest Aaron and his sons were to be made holy. It says, God speaking of Aaron and his sons, I will consecrate, which means to set apart as holy, as specifically devoted to communicating God's holiness, I will consecrate them to serve me as priests. That is, I'm setting them apart from ordinary tasks and from the evil and the sin of the world to parallel my own separation from sin, and I'm dedicating them to honor and serve me. And it's not just priests, it's all of God's people. God's holiness is a pattern that points to our true purpose as his creation. Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. When God called his people out of Egypt, he said, Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this wasn't just for Old Testament believers in the New Testament. Jesus' own followers are called to know, Hebrews 12, 10, that God's discipline is given that we may share his holiness and that we are to strive, Hebrews 12, 14, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect, complete in the fear of God. The church itself is called, Ephesians 2, 21, to grow into a holy temple in the Lord, a place where God dwells. Christ's perfect life, Ephesians 5 tells us, it was given that he might sanctify her, the church, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even Jesus's purpose was to honor God, the Father is holy, and to make the church holy too. Friends, the overwhelming witness of the scriptures 
from beginning to end is that God is holy, he is sinless, he is altogether and completely perfect, pure, and without blemish in every possible way we could ever imagine. And all of creation finds its true purpose and ultimate joy in living from and communicating that awesome truth. If we knew one-tenth of the fullness of God's absolutely undefiled separation from sin. We would think full-throttled devotion to communicating with our lives who God is would be egregiously less than what he actually deserves. Which is why, friends, when we realize our sinfulness... It's because we have seen God's holiness. Going back to Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 of Isaiah. When God speaks, the foundations of the entire temple shake and it is filled, the temple is filled with smoke. And Isaiah says this, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me is what happens when you come into the presence of true holiness. God's moral perfections, they undo us because he is good, he is righteous, he is majestic, he is altogether wonderful in ways that are awesome beyond our best descriptions and that deserve to be communicated with power and integrity. When we come into contact with a three times holy God, we realize we are unclean and not up to the task. And the truth is, friends, that we do not remotely live up to the standard of God's holiness. Just listen to how the Bible describes where we really are in relation to his holiness. In the book of 1 John, it tells us, and it means this, Love comes from God. Look at 1 John 4.10. It says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the full payment and satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And then just a few verses later in verse 19, John says, and he means this more forcefully than we think, we love because he first loved us. Which is to say in our natural condition, we do not love God. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just a couple verses later in Romans 5 and verse 10, it says that while we were enemies, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled, made in right relationship to God by the death of his son. Colossians 1.21 says that you were hostile in mind, meaning our mindset of sin is hostile to God's ways. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things, meaning the number one thing that you can say about the human heart is that it's deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Apart from the intervention of a holy God to give us eyes to see, we cannot even understand our deceitful and desperately sick hearts. Toward the end of a long section of Romans where Paul has made clear that, clear that we all deserve God's condemnation because of our unrighteousness that suppresses the truth of who he is, Paul says this in Romans 3, 9 through 12. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. Friends, our problem as humans is not that we are merely in need of good medicine, a nicer friend, a more thoughtful spouse, better strategies, more resources. But we have a moral problem that goes to the constituent nature of who we are as self-centered and spiritually dead sinners apart from the intervention of a God who alone is holy. What we need is God's holiness. He makes us alive by, don't miss this, his holy spirit that makes our hearts new. He makes us alive by the blood of Jesus that counts us as holy because of his perfect life sacrificed for us. Friends, facing your lack of holiness is actually the beginning of experiencing a profoundly freeing truth that God's holiness alone can be depended upon to make up for your lack, to make up for your sin. Let's take a moment, just a minute, and think about this takeaway question. How have you been refusing to admit that God's holiness is what you really need to find your ultimate purpose, your true purpose? the Bible says that you and I fall miserably short of God's holiness. No matter how awesome you think you are, no matter how awesome the world says you are, no matter how awesome your mom tells you you are, 
You need God's holiness. You need God's holiness applied to your life by the blood of Jesus to make up for your sin. Friends, when we learn this amazing truth, we find our true purpose in honoring God for who he is as holy. Father in heaven, we have given ourselves to lesser things, to smaller visions, to pleasing ourselves for the world's means.